separated by distance, but we are one body in Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. So this morning, in the time that we have together, let's join together in giving God our attention, and let's ask for His blessing together. Let's pray. Lord God, our pleasant, our present situation reminds us of one important truth. It reminds us we have no reason to boast in our own strength. But then we never have reason to do that. Even when we feel strong, even when we seem to be successful, even in those times, our only reason to boast is that we have a great God who has poured out His great love on us. So we thank you this morning for every reminder that our hope is in you and not in ourselves. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. In these moments we have together, we ask you to speak to us, lift up our eyes from our own weakness to your power, from our own lack of wisdom to your perfect wisdom. And as we look up to you, we also bring to you the needs of our fellowship. We pray for those who are grieving today, for Glennis and John Mosley, who have lost a family member, Norman and Doreen Ellis, who have lost a good friend. We pray for those with health, health concerns, Carol Whitehouse, Elsie Boynton, Dorcas Harbin. We pray for Morna Walkington, who has surgery this week. Will you carry her through that? 
We pray for Andrew, Brian E., Jessica, Lizzie, and Emma, that they will be able to trust you as they wait to see Morna again. We also bring to you Lindsay Gordon, as she and her family consult with doctors and possible end-of-life care for Lindsay's mom. We pray for salvation for Lindsay's mom and also for Gary Saunders' dad, who is unwell. We ask you to intervene in the suffering of June Broom's nephew, Miles, who's back in hospital with a severe infection. In all of these situations and more, will you bring hope, peace, and salvation as needed? And the rest of our time together this morning, will you bring fresh grace and commitment to us all? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As elders this week, we decided that as unpleasant as it is to be reminded about not mingling, we really do need to do that regularly. So please, at the end of the service, just stand up when you're ready to leave and then move directly to the exit, the same door as you came in, keeping a two-meter distance from others. And then later today, we do have our six o'clock service that will be online only, but I hope that you're able to join in with that, looking, continuing to look at Matthew chapter 22. And that will be followed by a coffee time at 10 past seven. Steve has sent out an email for how to join that. If you didn't get the email or you can't find it, you could uh, just let Steve know this afternoon and he will make sure you have the details for that. Our first song reminds us that the work God has begun in Christ will be carried on to completion. God will see it through because he is the King of Kings. Knowing this was our 
salvation, Jesus, for our sake you died. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, Bible within reach. We're going to have a Bible reading now where Jesus calls us to give serious thought to the way we live and what we build our lives on. The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 7. Give you a moment to turn there before we have the reading. Matthew chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 21. Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man 
who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Our next song is one that we haven't used for a while, but it could be a theme song for Second Peter, which we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. This song encourages us to build our lives on Jesus Christ, the rock. We belong to the day. We will win. 
As I mentioned earlier, this morning we begin looking at Peter's second letter. And let me explain why this letter, I think, is important to us in the particular situation we're in at the moment. When our lives were disrupted back last March, we probably thought we would be living with that disruption for a short while. Maybe you mentally set a time period in your head, a few weeks or a few months, and then we'll be back to normal. But as time went on, it became obvious to all of us, this disruption to our lives was not going to be short term. When it got to August, September time, we probably realized we would be living with disrupted lives till the end of the year. But now here we are in the new year, and it's dawning on us, this is all going to continue for a good bit longer. Easter maybe, the summer maybe, who knows? And so as the can keeps getting kicked further and further down the road, and as so much of normality continues to be on hold for us, it's easy for us to begin to think that our Christian responsibilities are also on hold. Since we've hit the pause button on normal life, we may begin to think in terms of our Christian life being paused as well. We'll pick it up again when things go back to normal. But Peter's second letter is going to tell us there is no pause button for the Christian life. In every circumstance, we must press on. We must seek to move forward as Christians. The King is coming, Peter is going to tell us, and every day brings us a day nearer to Jesus' return. And so whatever else may have to be on hold in our lives, we must never think that way about the serious business of living for Jesus and growing more like Jesus. That is never something we set aside with the intention of picking it up later. And so Peter begins this letter telling us to build on the rock. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, 
and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. And it's a very carefully balanced passage. In the second half of this, Peter reminds us of our responsibility to build. But he begins by showing us the rock we're to build on. In other words, there is a strong emphasis in this passage on the need for our own effort. But that is not where Peter starts. He starts with the beautiful reality of God's gift to us. A gift requires no effort from us at all. And you and I will never understand Christianity. We can't begin to understand it unless we realize the Christian life is God's gift to us. In verses 1 to 4, Peter shows this gift has two aspects to it faith in Jesus, and power to live like Jesus. First, faith in Jesus is God's gift to us. Peter has written to these Christians before. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, this is my second letter to you. But it's worth noticing the way Peter introduces or reintroduces himself. He says in verse 1, he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter belongs to Jesus. He's a servant, literally a slave, he says. And Peter also has a significant mission. He's an apostle. That means he's a messenger. Now, the 12 disciples were commissioned by Jesus to pass on the truth about him. They did that through preaching the good news and by writing it. The result of that is the New Testament we have today. And the point is, these apostles were a big deal in terms of the work they had to do. And so you and I might think they were Christians who were on another level. Like Marvel Avengers are on another level from the ordinary army or the police. But look what Peter says in verse 1. He's writing to ordinary Christian men and women, people whose names we don't even know, just like most of the world doesn't know my name or your name. These are ordinary Christians, not celebrity Christians. And yet Peter says to them in verse 1, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, you ordinary Christians have received a faith as precious as the apostles' faith. Righteousness here means fairness. So in God's fairness, he has given ordinary, no-name Christians a faith just as precious as the faith of the Apostle Peter or John or Paul. 
my faith and your faith is no less adequate, it's no less sufficient than Peter or James's faith. My faith in Jesus and your faith in Jesus leads to the same forgiveness of sins as John's or Paul's faith in Jesus. My faith in Jesus and your faith in Jesus brings me into a living relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The same living relationship as Peter and the other apostles had. In verse 2, Peter says, Our faith in Jesus opens a channel for God's grace and peace to flow into our lives. And the key in all this is that this precious faith in Jesus is God's gift to us. Maybe we tend to think of faith as something we have to summon up ourselves. I must believe, I must have faith. And yes, the New Testament calls us to believe in Jesus. We have no excuse, the New Testament says, if we turn away from him. But the New Testament is equally clear that when we do believe, that faith is a gift given to us by God. You can see that here in verse 1. The faith Peter is talking about is a faith we have received. When you and I come and we see Jesus for who he is, when we know him in that sense, when we read the Bible and see that he's the Son of God come in the flesh, when we see that his sacrifice on the cross was for our sin, when we see that he has a truly wonderful future in store for us, that knowledge and belief is something we receive from God. It is his life-saving gift to you and me. So according to the New Testament, you and I didn't really go looking for God. He went looking for us. He pursued you. He opened your eyes to see who Jesus really is. He showed you that you need Jesus. He gave you faith in Jesus that he is your savior. That his death paid for your sins. The fact that you look to Jesus for salvation is a gift from God. And this is important because it means the faith you have is not a shaky little platform you built for yourself to give some meaning to your life. No, the fact that you trust in Jesus is proof the living God has come to you and given you an unshakable rock to stand on. All of us have highs and lows in our lives. We all waver at times. We have periods when our faith is weak and dim and faltering. All those things are true. But once you and I realize the fact that we have faith at all is proof God has claimed us for himself. That is where our security comes from. If my security depended on how triumphant or convinced I feel then a good deal of the time I would have no security. The significant factor here is not the strength of my faith, it's the source of my faith. My faith is a gift from God. 
and he will preserve it till the end. The strength of our feelings is not really what matters. It's the strength of God that matters. He gave us faith in Jesus, and that gift of faith means we have complete forgiveness and eternal life. And that is why your faith is as precious as the apostles' faith. It's a life-saving gift from God, just as their faith was. The second aspect of God's gift to us is power to live like Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, the key word was received. In verses 3 and 4, the key word is given. It appears in both verse 3 and verse 4. First, verse 3 says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Sometimes you and I don't really believe that. We think to ourselves, I know that normally I'm supposed to be able to live a godly life, but surely God can't expect it of me in this situation with these pressures I'm facing, whatever they are. We think to ourselves, surely God understands the people I have to deal with make it impossible for me to act and react in ways that honor Him. I read recently of a high-profile Christian who was involved in very blatant sin. But he told those around him I do so much for God. I carry such burdens and I make such sacrifices for Him. He understands that I need this particular sin. I think we can all talk ourselves into that kind of thinking. But it's wrong thinking. It's not New Testament thinking. The New Testament says... God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Whatever our circumstances, whatever pressures we're under, whatever people we have to deal with, we can deal with those people in ways that honor God. We can act in ways that honor Him. That is God's gift to us, Peter says. And notice how this power it comes along with faith in Jesus. In verse 3, God's divine power comes through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. That's talking about Jesus. When we have come to know Him for who He is, we also receive power to live like Him. Faith and power are two aspects of the same gift of God. We don't get one without the other. Nobody gets power to live like Jesus without faith in Jesus. And nobody gets faith in Jesus without the power to live like Him. Look how that comes out in verse 4. Because of God's glory and goodness, He has given us very great and precious promises. Promises of salvation, promises that we are accepted by God, promises that we have a secure future, and plenty of other things. And as you and I take those promises on board, Peter says we may participate 
in the divine nature. That has got to be one of the most striking statements in the whole New Testament. But what does it mean? Well, it does not mean we become God. This is not telling us the Holy Trinity just got bigger now that you and me have joined the club. God is God, we are not, and we never will be. So what does this mean? That we can participate in the divine nature. It means our lives can display God's character. That's what Jesus' life did. Jesus' Father is merciful and pure and fair and loving and trustworthy and faithful and compassionate and truthful and unwaveringly committed to what is right. That's what God the Father is like. And during his life on earth, Jesus displayed his Father's character. Jesus' life displayed those attributes. And here Peter tells us, part of God's gift to you and me is that we can live like Jesus. This is not talking about you and me turning water into wine or walking on water or raising the dead. Yes, Jesus did all of those things, but that's not what this is about. Peter specifically says this is about the divine nature. God's nature is seen in his character traits. And that is what you and I can participate in. As we read on in this passage, it becomes clear that's what Peter means. At the end of verse 4, he says, we can participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So this is not about us taking on Jesus' ability to work miracles. It's not about us taking on God's ability to know everything or to be in sovereign control of everything. This is about God working in us to lead us out of corruption and evil desires. He has broken sin's power over us. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Participating in the divine nature means leaving sin behind. Becoming more like Jesus in his purity and his goodness. Now we have to ask... Is that a process for us? Of course it is. We don't get zapped with some kind of godliness ray that does all the work at once. It's not like having a chip inserted in our heart that sorts out our struggle with sin in one nice, easy procedure. Becoming like Jesus is a lifelong process. And there will be days and weeks where we seem to make no progress or even to be going backwards. And this is a process that will only be completed when we finally see Jesus face to face. If anyone claims to be perfectly like Jesus already, then that person is self-deceived. And they probably don't know much about Jesus. Because all of us have a long, long way to go. 
And we will not be perfectly like him until we see him. But here's the point Peter's making. We can begin to be like Jesus. We can make progress in being like him. As time goes by, we can display more of his character in our lives. God's gift to us is the power to become more like Jesus. So when you see a Christian who is like Jesus, when some aspect of their character reminds you of Jesus, it is not because they are a Marvel superhero Christian and you're just a bog-standard Christian. No, every Christian, Peter says, has the same power to participate in the divine nature. The opportunity is there for every Christian. And so in the second part of our passage, Peter sets out our lifelong responsibility. God's gift to us comes first. God's gift is the rock in our lives. It's our secure, unshakable foundation. That's what our hope and security rest on. They rest on His work, not ours. And then... Our responsibility is to build on that rock. And again, there are two aspects to this. The first is to work hard to grow more like Jesus. Now, if you and I couldn't be like Jesus, these verses would be silly. But because we can be like him, Peter says in verse 5, for this very reason, because you can be like him, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. It's important to emphasize these verses have nothing at all to do with you and me earning our salvation. That's why verses 1 to 4 came first. These verses are for men, women, and children who have faith in Jesus. Faith that He earned our salvation for us. Only those who have faith in Jesus have power to live like Jesus. So only those who have faith in Jesus can make any genuine progress in what these verses are describing. Faith comes first. And then we are called to make every effort with these things. Even during lockdowns. Even when normal church life is disrupted. Even when we live or work with difficult, difficult people. Even when our life is chock full of deeply frustrating things or deeply painful things. Still, we are to make every effort to grow more like Jesus in the midst of those painful, frustrating, difficult, disruptive conditions. Isn't that what Jesus himself did? His life was not a cakewalk. Jesus displayed godliness 
and I'm using that as a kind of summary for all of this, Jesus displayed godliness in the face of constant opposition throughout his life. We've been seeing that recently in Matthew's gospel, haven't we? Wherever he went, Jesus was hounded by his enemies. He was willfully misunderstood by people who wanted to trip him up in what he said. While at the same time, half of the country was clamoring around him, looking for him to sort out their problems, to heal them, or feed them, or settle their family quarrels, or sort out the catering at their wedding. The wine's run out, Jesus. Can you do something about it? It seems the only way Jesus could get time to himself was by climbing a mountain and staying up all night. But in all of that, he displayed godly character. And of course, we want to respond to that by saying, sure, he did, but he's God. Yes, so he is not exactly like you and me, and yet the New Testament insists that Jesus shared fully in our humanity. And Peter has just assured us we can participate in his divine nature. We cannot become God, but we can begin to display God's character, just as Jesus did. We can begin to display his character as we deal with enemies, with people who misunderstand us, and with people who depend on us and seek our help. We can display God's character, and we must make every effort to do so. In his commentary on these verses, John Calvin says, Our faith should not be bare or empty. But these things should be its inseparable companions. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. These things should be the inseparable companions of our faith in Jesus. I don't think this list needs much explanation. Peter doesn't give us much explanation because I think we know what these things are on his list. I think we know what they look like. And we know what it's like when these things are missing. We know the ugliness and the ungodliness of their opposites. And look how Peter acknowledges adding these things to our faith is a process. Our character is not changed with a snap of our fingers. Look at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, developing godly character is a process. It comes in increasing measure, not all at once. It is a process but it has to be an intentional process. You and I must not think we will somehow slide into godliness. We mustn't think we will somehow drift into goodness and self-control. 
We can certainly drift into disobedience and sin, but we will not drift into these good things. They require effort and commitment from us. So as you and I think about these weeks or months of lockdown stretching ahead of us again, let's not think of these weeks and months as a time when we put godliness on hold. These circumstances, like all circumstances, are an opportunity to grow in godliness. And they are also a chance to slide away from godliness. In verse 9, Peter says, Whoever does not have the characteristics on this list is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. If you and I don't make effort towards godliness, we will slide into blindness and forgetfulness, Peter says. So in the months ahead... Are you going to become more faithful or more fearful? Are you going to become more loving or more lazy? More Christ-like or more corrupt? More sincere or more sinful? None of us will come out of this exactly the same as we went into it. We will either have moved purposefully toward godliness or we will have drifted away from godliness. We will not stay the same. We never do. So what will it mean for you personally to make every effort towards godliness during this lockdown? Will it mean being honest about some sin and doing what you have to do to turn your back on it? Will it mean pursuing a deeper knowledge of Jesus through more careful and consistent Bible study? Will it mean some definite decisions about how you're going to show love to a particular person or maybe a group of people? Let's each one of us decide how we personally are going to pursue godliness. Let's plan how we're going to do it. It's not just expect it's going to happen magically. Let's make a plan, a personal plan, and then let's follow through with it. As people who have received God's gift of faith in Jesus and power to live like Jesus, Peter says we have a lifelong responsibility to work hard to grow more like Jesus. And to keep in mind Jesus' return. This is probably the central theme of Peter's letter. He's going to deal with it in much more detail later on. But he introduces it here in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort 
to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's easier if we take these verses in reverse order. Verse 11 points us to the future we have in Christ. That future is ours because of Christ. We have a place in his coming eternal kingdom because of his work on the cross, not because of our work. Peter made that clear back in verse 1. We are not our own saviors. Our savior is Jesus Christ. When we arrive finally in his eternal kingdom, we will be there because of him. So our good works do not earn us a place in the kingdom. But they do give evidence we are headed for the kingdom. Jesus said, every good tree produces good fruit. And his point was, our lives give evidence of who we belong to. Our lives give evidence of where we're going. So as Christians, the lives we live do not earn heaven for us but they do show whether we're going there or not. If over time my life shows no imprint of God's character, if over time my life shows no evidence of Christ-likeness, that indicates I don't know Christ. It indicates I'm not headed for his kingdom. Now, this doesn't mean if you lose your temper this afternoon, you're not a Christian. Of course, it doesn't mean that. Likewise, if you don't know much of what the Bible says, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But if over time we make no progress in taming our temper, if over time we make no progress in obeying God's word because we simply don't care to know God's word, then eventually we have to ask ourselves the question, do I know Jesus at all? Because those who know him want to be like him. They want to listen to him and then do what he says. And however hard it is, however slow their progress is, they keep working to progress. That's what Peter's getting at in verse 10 when he calls us to make every effort to confirm our calling and election. Now we know God is the one who elects and calls people. He saves them. And those who are saved begin to give evidence of that in their lives. So, when Peter says, confirm your calling and election, he does not mean earn your salvation. He does not even mean pay the last little bit of your salvation. As if Jesus paid the first 95% and now we've got to contribute the last 5%. No. Confirm your calling and election means show by your life that you have been elected and called. 
Make every effort, however faltering and stuttering it is, make every effort to display the fruit of salvation in your life. Work to display the effects of salvation in the way you speak, in the way you make plans, the way you act, the way you spend your money, the way you use your phone. Peter has told us, God has given us the power to do that, to honor him in all of those areas of our lives. So our calling is to commit to being a faithful person, a person who is growing in godliness over time. That is our lifelong responsibility, to build a life on the firm rock of our salvation in Christ. To build a life that little by little, over time, begins to look Christ-like. And you and I do this knowing that Christ is returning. And we want to begin living now as we will live then. In His eternal, perfect kingdom. That's the encouragement and the challenge of this passage for us. And our last song captures, I think, the heart of what Peter has been telling us. It says that we labor to follow Jesus. We work hard at it every day. And at the same time, we rejoice and we are at peace because our hope ultimately is in Jesus, not in our own effort. The song is, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Power is displayed. 
tread I know I am forgiven The future sure The price it has been paid For Jesus bled And suffered for my pardon And he was raised To overthrow the grave To to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore amen